Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, there's been statements and phrases like really common and frankly, very popular overused phrase at this point that data is the new oil. Why you think about these organizations um, that are constantly leaking user data? <laughs> um, or I'm sorry, they, they experience leaks. They're not leaking. I mean, supposedly, I don't know. But the point is, is that uh, data People data, understanding how you spend, how you act, the things you like, the things you don't like, uh, what you frequent, what you're interested in in your free time, what you're interested in while you're at work, where you work, where you live. Like data is oil, right? Like it's the new oil. It's the means by which uh, we can predict and understand you so that we can sell things to you. Right. Like that's the whole point. Um, It's the means by which we can predict what you're going to do which then allows us to then make proactive moves to, again, make money, right? And so when you think about data in that regard, like it's only reasonable to presume or to come to the conclusion or a conclusion that data uh, will be the battleground for diversity, equity, inclusion efforts as we talk about the next you know, eight years. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking at things in decades. Between now and 2030, data will continue to be a hot button internal battleground uh, between your team's HR departments, your data teams, and your diversity and inclusion offices if you have one. How they spin and position data on matters of DEI will be critical in terms of what actual progress black and brown, disabled, historically excluded people experience um, and how they experience the workplace. It's going to be critical in that. And so I believe that as we think about like just again, like this decade, organizations, groups, movements, initiatives that can really figure out how to gather people data in a meaningful way, the data that folks are very scared to get or give or share and then receive and present that information back Um, and be predictive and prescriptive in their analysis of that data, this data that is very hard for organizations to relinquish their control of, they're going to shape the future. They're definitely going to shape the future of people experience and uh, organizations that lean into people data and true analysis. Those are the organizations that are going to experience the most most growth and long-term success. And that's just the way it is. And so, you know, all that being said, I'm really excited to have Aubrey Blanche, 
black, black, Aubrey Blanche, black, Aubrey Blanche, back on Living Corporate. Keep it in. Don't even keep it in, Aaron. Um, I'm really thankful because not only of like our relationship, but because of the the studies that she's leading and that she's able to speak to um, at Culture Amp and the work that they're doing and the findings that they've um, they, they've uncovered um, after surveying quite a few folks. <laughs> we'll put the link in the show notes. If you want to check it out yourself, but I think it's incredible information. Um, it's important for not only uh, leaders to check out, but honestly, if, if no, irrespective of where you sit in the organization, you owe it to yourself to uh, to give the uh, give the white paper a look and just check it out. Speaking of checking it out, we're gonna check in with uh, with Aubrey here in a few but before we check in with Aubrey we're going to tap in with Tristan okay so talk to you soon what's going on living corporate it's Tristan and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals this week I want to discuss how to set yourself up for a raise or promotion so you can be where the money resides where the money resides where the money resides where the money resides okay (laughs) many of us arrive at our end of the year reviews with our fingers crossed hoping that we receive that raise or promotion the majority of us end up disappointed either because we got that standard industry two percent raise or worse none at all That's never a fun space to be in, but there are a few steps you can take to increase your chances of landing a higher raise or that promotion you were seeking. Many of the things we are going to discuss were inspired by a thread I found on Twitter by Simone B, at Simone M-B-A-N-N-A. So let's dive into them. It starts at the beginning of the year when you're setting your goals with your boss. Take some time to identify the intersection of what the company wants and what you provide. Where those two things overlap is what you can do for the company, your unique value proposition, if you will. All of your goals should be derived from this area as they will serve the dual purpose of meeting the company's goals and meeting some of your own professional goals. When setting these goals, you wanna focus on things that are relevant to your personal and professional goals, things that are impactful to the company, and finally, things that can be measured or quantified. Use the acronym RIM R-I-M, to remember where you should be focusing. Relevant, impactful, and measurable. Many professionals make the mistake of waiting until a performance review to discuss a raise or promotion. These are conversations that should be happening all year round during your one-on-ones with your boss. Take the time to ask them, am I on track to receive a raise? Or am I on track to receive a promotion? And if not, what do I need to change? Lastly, you want to make sure you gather receipts. Keep emails from internal and external stakeholders who are singing your praises for the work you've done. Simone mentioned even creating a survey to send out to people you've worked with to measure your performance against company goals and promotional criteria. This is actually a tactic I successfully used in several jobs. Ensure that you share this information with your boss both in your one-on-ones and during your performance review. If you follow these tips, you will set yourself on the right track to get where the money resides, whether that's a raise or a promotion. Make sure to follow Simone at Simone M. Banna, which is S-I-M-O-N-E-M-B-A-N-N-A on Twitter because she is continually dropping gems. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may help others. 
So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. That's bit.ly forward slash T-A-P-I-N-T-R-I-S-T-A-N. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Aubrey, you're back. What's going on? Not too much. I'm always thrilled to be back. Seeing your presence is always an honor. And hey, everybody. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. Aubrey Blanche of Culture Amp. Listen, I'd love to understand Culture Amp's study, right? You all went out and you, you know, you conducted a huge survey and then you put together a fairly impressive analysis, right? A book of analysis. Like, I'd love to understand one. What was the impetus for Culture Amp to even participate in this work? And then, yeah, I'd love to like talk a little bit about like, you know, what things is in there did you find that were interesting? But let's start with just the impetus of like, why did y'all even do this? Yeah, I think like the why is actually pretty simple, which is that like we are really passionate about DEI, both because we call ourselves like a culture first business. And like we just don't see like equity work as separate from that like how can you be culture first if you're racist as hell you know so that's part of it and then i think we also saw this escalating um you know number of inquiries from our customers who are saying like how do we start our dei journey what are the most effective practices for doing it and so for us it was both about like we care internally as well as like the business that we're in is specifically helping companies on their employee experience journey. But like for us, again, like equity is a non-negotiable part of that employee experience. And then the third piece was that like, who else has this data? You know, a lot of companies have survey data or have, you know, data about practices, but they don't have both. And so we thought the thing that we could do that would be really powerful is take our data sets and actually tell the world here are the specific programs that people are doing so you can benchmark better. But also as the, the third part of this 2022 Workplace DEI report showed is like which specific initiatives drive diversity, drive equity, drive inclusion. And what we found is that there's some of the most common practices are actually being done, but a lot of the things that actually create change, and I know we'll talk about that a little bit, are things that are way less likely to be invested in. And so, what I totally honestly, when I was, you know, I was looking through the data, I was like, most, you know, chief diversity officers, heads of DEI are not going to be shocked by this, but this is science that they can take to their bosses to justify the choices that they already knew they should be making. So, you know, it's interesting, I think, to that point around, hey, look, we already knew this, but like, here's the data behind it. Kind of reminds me of Dr. Tema Okun's, like when she talks about white supremacy culture and like one of them being like, just like holding the written word above like everything else or giving that sort of measurable or quantitative data uh, much more um, credence or uh, respect. I, I think for me is like, as you look at the information, like, can you talk to me a little bit about like how the data was organized in terms of like what informed the design of the report itself? Because it's a lot of information. It's so much. And I'll be totally honest, like, one of the most difficult parts of this project was like wrangling the pure number of insights that we got because 
again, we're talking about 300 practitioners and 1.1 million employee experience survey responses. So the cool thing is like the data is super rigorous, but it also means there was so much to be found in it. And so when we organized it, we thought first we just wanted to say like, what is true in the employee experience? And so that's the first section of the report, which is just like, what's happening for people in the world? And so that's using, you know, this, this employee experience data that CultureAmp customers collect through the platform. And then the second section, we really wanted to say, you know, from this unique, you know, novel survey that we conducted, what are people actually doing and what are they not doing? So what benefits are they offering? How are they communicating? What does their plan look like? What do their policies look like? Because there's such a dearth of information, uh, right? There's lots of like BuzzFeed listicle articles about like, black people, but like, that's just like somebody's opinion about what they called from the internet. And so, and some of those tactics work and some of them don't. And so for us, we really wanted to say like, how do we build a benchmark so that especially because our research showed that 80% of people who are in DEI roles were hired in the last 18 months. So, and you and I have talked about this. We know that because of the exponential growth in this field over even the last couple of years, the majority of people are coming in without any DEI experience specifically. And so we wanted to like basically give those folks a leg up and say like, here's what other folks are doing so you can take that into account as you're figuring out how to be effective in the role. And then third section, right, is where we bring the data sets together. And we wanted to say not just, you know, what are employees experiencing? What are people doing? But what's working? There's so many ways, you know, for example, like um, employee resource groups is something that so many companies start with. And what our research shows is like, those are relevant for building inclusion, but they don't actually build equity in a company. And that's not to say they're not valuable. They're incredibly valuable parts of an organizational structure, but you have to understand what you're going to be able to achieve with the programs that you're running. And so the answer is not like get rid of ERGs. The answer is invest in them and also invest in the things that create equity for the members of that community. And so we just wanted to empower practitioners with that kind of rigorous science that I so agree with you. Of course, this is about playing into the white supremacist patriarchal society that we live in. But I think for CultureAmp, you know, we think about how we can help practitioners speak to that power. And one of the ways we can do that is by almost using the system against itself. It's like, fine, you need quantitative data, you need science. Great, we can provide that to you in ways that will help dismantle it, ideally. So dope. And so, like, I think for me, it's like, I'm, I'm curious, especially in this climate, where there's increased tension and fragility or insecurity around really naming harms or talking about race in any sort of critical way. I'm curious, like, what is the ethos and like how you talk through some of the findings or uh, problems that the data may illustrate? And uh, like, do you have, do y'all, does Culture Amp have a point of view on like, okay, hey, we're not going to use certain language. We're not going to say certain things. We're going to like walk up to the plate and say this, or maybe we won't really opine as much here. Like, talk to me about how y'all write the the editorial pieces of some of the of some of the report. Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think we went into it, and this probably also speaks to the fact that like there was a very um, identity diverse team that worked on this. So of the folks who worked like directly on just drafting and like editing the report, we're talking about. All of us happen to be women, but two Asian women, three Latinas, you know, one white woman, a couple of queer folks. 
So we have a very particular lens on the world. And what we decided in, in deciding the tone of the report was we're not serving anyone by pulling punches, but that doesn't mean we have to be um, cruel, right? The truth and like holding accountable is more compassionate. So like a specific example that I'll bring up is in our data, what it showed is that white employees were the least likely to believe that systems were inequitable. And so we not only said that because that's just a fact of what the data showed us, but we also you know, put in our hypothesis that this is a major impediment to progress because white people tend to be in positions of power. And if people in positions of power don't perceive a problem, they're not gonna solve it. And our hope is like, sure, some people are gonna be hella fragile about that, but there's actually probably a good number of white people who are gonna listen to that data and be like, oh yeah. Whereas right in the section above it, we talk about the way that you know black employees' experiences have improved the most year over year, so 2020 to 2021, but also they're still the least likely to perceive equitable opportunities being available to them. And that's pretty damn rational to me. Um, and so putting that data side by side, we hope is a way for us to provide, not that anyone needs our validation, but provide validation for what like these communities of color or women or LGBT folks, you know, cause we cover all those, those experiences in the report. Um, we cover that because we want to validate what can maybe feel like a small N or N equals one story. We're saying like, but you're, this is actually true. And this is true at different levels of the data and they're all valid. Um, there are some gaps for us. So we noted this specifically in the report because we didn't want folks to feel left out, but like our customers just didn't collect enough data on non-binary folks or on indigenous people for us to make any type of inferences at all. And so we made the choice to acknowledge that in footnotes because we didn't want to continue the pattern of erasure for those communities from the corporate space. So we had to acknowledge our own limitations and you know we take responsibility for our part in that, but also we're beholden to the representation of those folks and the practice around data collection. And so we try to you know take our own responsibility for why we've made the choice we did, but also point to the systemic challenge that put us in the situation we're in because it's kind of a yes and responsibility. Like as I continue to think about like the report itself, because I, I remember myself just being so excited as I looked at it, it's like, wow, this is like really, really thorough. What do you envision the future of these reports to be? Like, do you see it like just like is the goal just to kind of like run these at a like an ongoing clip? Do you see like Culture Amp kind of shifting and also providing like consultative advice paired with the data? Like, what do you see as the future and what excites you about that, if anything? Yeah. So I think the future, like this is the kind of study that we would want to put out at a regular cadence because the employer experience is constantly changing. And, you know, we talk about the fact that we are, you know, the leading employee experience platform. And so I feel like editorializing a little bit is that like we owe it to our customers to continue to churn out insights that they can't generate on their own. So for us, I see it as a part of our commitment to being culture first, as our part of our commitment to evolving as a more anti-racist organization, as much as that's possible for a white-led, white-founds company. Um, and so, but I also just think like from my perspective, 
this is also like an employee engagement tactic. Like internally, people are so excited about this study. Our sellers love it. The marketing team and our people science team has loved putting it together. Like so many people care about these topics internally that for us, it drives so much employee excitement. But then the idea that you can connect that to making the world of work better for people and especially enabling like the incredible community of DEI practitioners to take this data, run with it and be more effective in their roles, that's really important. So like something you'll see is that like the report is available for free. You don't have to be a customer. You don't have to be like a friend of Culture Imps to get it. And that was really important to us because we were like, you know, if Culture Imps mission is to build a better world of work, we can't do that by like throwing shit behind a paywall. We have to say, we have insight that other people don't have access to. And if we believe in accessibility and we believe in everyone rising together, we need to provide this freely to the world. So I would say we definitely want to continue doing this um, as we get bigger, as we have more customers, as our customers begin to collect more and more DEI data, the insights that we're going to have are going to get sharper. And so that can benefit the community. And then I think, you know, my vision for this is just for us to continue churning out thought leadership. Like, my dream, like, is there a DEI Research Institute at Culture Amp? Like, sign me up. Um, but then I think in terms of providing consulting services, I'll be honest, and this is my editorializing, so I'm less speaking, like, as a corporate position for Culture Amp, but I think what would be a better, a better approach, especially because so many DEI practitioners are historically marginalized and our founding team is, like, a bunch of cis, het, white, male brunettes, um, mm-hmm. They really care about the brunette part. Like they always bring that up. Um, but like, is why don't we provide our insights and our technological tooling in ways that makes it easier for DEI practitioners to do their work, right? So how can we, you know, like DEI practitioners spend less time on data analysis and more time on insight gathering and building strategic plans for these companies. The report, by the way, shows that only 49% of companies have a strategic plan on DEI, which like, how do you expect to get anything done? With that? I, I'm going to be honest, that sounds really high, but. Right. I mean, I was like, I was like, tell me about your strategic plan. 56% have a DEI council though. So I'm like, what's going on with the councils without a plan? I don't know. Yeah. But like, so that's what I see as like my vision for CultureAmp is I would love for CultureAmp because of our global reach, the depth of our customer base. Like I would love to see CultureAmp almost being like a referral network for DEI professionals who are doing employee experience and like DEI uplift in a really rigorous way. So not that we're going to be telling people how they should do their jobs. That's not our place. But like, how do we better shine a light on the community of practitioners who are already doing the work in this space and then provide technology that accelerates their ability to help their clients make change? Like, that would be my personal vision for where CultureAmp fits into the ecosystem. Because like, what do we do? We make software. We're not consultants. And we don't need to pretend like they're the same thing or that we're the right people to be providing it. I happen to be, right, like a consultant and I work at CultureAmp. But like, CultureAmp is a software company and they should focus on what they do best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I I don't know if you've been keeping up with um, the world of football. Have you heard about uh, the situation with the Miami Dolphins? Oh, I don't know. But you want to give me like the cliff notes? I I got you. I got you. So you may know that the NFL um, has overwhelmingly 
uh, white coaches, right? I think there's one black. Oh, coach. I do know about this. Okay. okay. All right. Cool. So, so I'm gonna I keep it going for the audience, but for the audience, but but the audience may not. Oh, yeah. So like we can we can like we can sherpa them together. So in fact, right now there's only one black head coach, Mike Tomlin, who's the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, there was a black coach who was the coach for the Dolphins the past two years, named Brian Flores, and he was fired. He's going on a whole media campaign. He is suing the NFL. So the Dolphins hired a new coach to replace Brian Flores, who they fired. And the new coach is named Mike McDaniels. Okay. Mike McDaniel is, uh, they said, well, um, this is a big deal for us because he's actually biracial. I'm sorry. He's multiracial. It's how they describe Mike uh, McDaniels. And, and so then Peters came out and they were like, this guy, he's white passing. Like, he's white passing. He's white passing. And everybody was like, yo, like, what is this? What is this? Y'all are just doing this just to, because y'all just got, so y'all just hired, y'all just brought him on just to say whatever. So the Twitterverse was all in a flurry because the new coach, the multiracial person, got to the stand and was like, yo, like, I don't know why people are so obsessed about race. You know, I'm a human being. My dad is black. But, you know, that's that's it, right? And so I bring all this up because one, the tweets is going crazy. The bird is going crazy, but it's more about you have had conversations. You've had like, you've, you've openly discussed like you being white passing and like the dichotomy of that. And, and I'm just curious, like, how do you navigate being white passing, but like, again, not living life as a white woman per se, but like, or even just the nuances of that. Um, for me, it's tough. Cause like, I hear stuff, like I said, with Mike McDaniel was like a big pop culture thing that happened today, but. And I think like when folks say things like, well, I'm not, I'm not black or I'm not white. I'm just me. And there's a certain level of um, disingenuousness there for me, but I'm also speaking as a black man. So like, I'd love just to kind of get your perspective and like hear you talk more about like your own identity and like what it looked like for you to, to come to whatever piece you need to come to is just who you are. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. You always ask the best and like most complicated and the most beautiful way questions. Um, so I have like a really complicated relationship with this. And I think if I ever got too comfortable, I'd probably start fucking up. <laughs> um, and so for me, I try to be really careful about the fact that I occupy both spaces. So I think there's like this, I'm not this, I'm not that. That's very like binary thinking that is just silly. Like, like I'm mixed race, you know, uh, and Latina. So like I've got, you know, I'm racially confused. Um, but, but I think for me, it's about like, I deeply acknowledge the white privilege that I carry. Like, but I also, um, so someone just gave me this language, uh, recently, her name is Vivian Casillo. Um, she's like the CEO of Humanity Centered, which is this amazing design thing. Just everyone should go buy her services. She's a genius. Um, but she was like, how do you respond to the phrase white passing versus white assumed? And like immediately my heart like jumped out of my chest and I was like, oh my God, white assumed feels more correct because like white passing indicates like an intention to be seen as white, whereas white assumed has more to do with the perception of you because, mm. because I grew up in a super white place where like I was super othered for being Mexican. My internal identity construction is much more like fuck whiteness, like I want to work against it. But I also have to contend with the fact that like, I do look white. People treat me as white in a lot of instances. I get privileges because of that. And 
the way I personally make decisions about when I do versus don't identify as a woman of color, which I understand some people don't like me using that term. And um, what I try to do is like, if I'm in a space where people are specifically saying, I don't want you to do that. I'm like, cool, I'm going to defer to you. You're darker than me. Like that's my personal In situations where it's helpful to the community for me to identify. So like example on the census, there's no individual benefit to me to like identify as yes, Hispanic, white, and Native American. Like I don't get any personal benefit from that. Like I would never apply for a professional development program for Native people. And not because like I don't see myself as a legitimate member of that community, right? Because we're not going to get into the blood quantum politics and like white, like dogs, horses, and indigenous people are, you know, quantified by their their blood quantums but like those programs the intent of them was not for people like me who grew up in a mixed household who are white passing who like have gone to like mostly white institutions like those programs were not intended for people like me and so there was no need for me to participate and take up space in them and so i try and it is imperfect and i constantly have to be open for feedback but like i try to be brown when it helps the brown community more than it helps me and engage like a white person or use my white privilege productively in spaces where that's the thing that benefits the community. And I wanna like say again, I'm not always gonna get this right. Like I've gotten some scathing feedback and also some very compassionate and those are often the same thing. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that was a really long digression, but that's how I think about it. And is like, but it goes back to this concept that I can hold the complexity that I'm both. And I think what happens is we often like want to put people in these single racial buckets. And the answer because of the history of the one drop rule, for example, is like, you can't be truly white unless you're like purely white. Whiteness is constructed. Um, and so, yeah, the way I think about it is you're white passing if you're trying to assimilate and you're white assumed if you just happen to, you know, need a lot of SPF. So here's the thing, right, is like, <sighs> I feel you. And some of that is quite some some of that is you can't automatically look at somebody and be like, okay, they white passes, but sometimes you can. Like if if you see somebody, or if you let's say as an example, right? I'm not gonna say the person's name. There's this person who with me, like they're white passing, okay? They're white passing. Mm -hmm. And with me privately, they will put on more of a, a more black affect, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever. But then when you observe how they move like away from you, all white community all white friends they spouse is white and that's okay, like not okay it's cool your spouse can be white my point is though white is everything around you right to me i mean you help me understand because i'm just not learning this term that would be like white passing right i mean so i will tell you i don't think it's my place to like put that label on somebody like i would ask them like which label resonates with you oh what you uh, ask oh you ask people I this. totally ask so wait, wait, wait. So you say, <laughs> so, <laughs> so wait, hold on. Uh, Aubrey, so you walk into somebody, you say, wait, so listen. I mean, not like you a look, You look, you look white, but I can tell you not white. So are you trying to be white or do you just look white? That's Is that what you're saying? I mean, kind of. Like, <laughs> I've, got, I've, got like a, I've got like a handful of like, what I would call white assumed friends, okay. like all, all Latinx, you know? And 
Like I will literally go up to them and I'll be like, tell me the difference in your like spirit in your heart of white passing versus white assumed. And every single one of them, because all of us happen to be not wanting to assimilate, like every single one of them has been like, oh my God, white assumed just changed my life. Like fundamentally changed the way they relate to the world. And so like those people, like they're claiming that label. And I think a lot of my like opinions about like an identity label has to be claimed. It can't be assigned comes from the fact that I'm queer and I'm like bi or pan or something on that spectrum. I don't really know. It's not that important, but like the fact that like, there's a lot of gatekeeping in the queer community about like who's allowed to be queer or not. And like, I've just learned to be like, you can't gatekeep whether or not I'm queer. Like, I can tell you that I perform queerness because like, I don't know, I was married to a woman, but like also, even if I had never performed queerness, but I still identified as queer, you can't tell me that that's invalid. And so I'm taking that like knowledge and that particular thought process from what I understand about the queer spectrum and saying like, it would be inconsistent for me to not apply that to race. So but again, we can hold the thing that like you identify as you identify and also, you've got all this fucking privilege around you. Like those things are not contrary concepts. They both exist. No, they're not. No, they're not. I think for me, what I'm as I like as I think about the terms, like I think what I'm thinking about is like in the past. You're right. When I say white passing, I do think yo, know, like this person knows that they look white, and they're trying and they're going to do things to accentuate the fact that they look white. So it. So when I say someone's white passing, I'm more so making a judgment on. This person, this person is putting on extra whiteness mm. because they don't want to be black or they don't want to be whatever. Like that's that. So when I think about what I really mean when I say that, so but the way you're framing it is like you're framing it like a true label, like a I'm a cis head man or I'm black or whatever. And so that's interesting. I, like that's a that's an interesting thought. But I like I also just want to like acknowledge that what you're saying makes fundamental sense to me and I don't at its core disagree with it. Like I and again maybe this is just my like very like porque no los dos like ethos but like both of those things are correct. But like okay, the question I'm asking of you not to be like argumentative but like to complicate the question is like but couldn't it be for like an example of like a white assumed person whose parent is black? Like, couldn't it be that they're just playing respectability politics, but they have the better ability to blend in? Like, how would we understand that as like, what if it's a survival tactic for them, which it probably is? I don't see it. I guess because okay, so and because of my economic circles, like I don't meet a lot of I haven't met a person who is white passing or white assumed. No, no, that's cool. I want to no, because I'm, I'm learning. So I've met a person who who could who looks like a white per, a black person who looks like a white person specifically, and they weren't doing very well financially. So like the whole idea around survival is like, I mean, survival to what, right? Like these people are doing very well. Like these are executives, or these are you know these are these are at least several hundred thousandaires, if not millionaires. So like, so my thing. So I don't know. I don't believe it's. Even the comment around like respectability politics, it's like, ugh. Like if you're going outside on your weekends and all I do is see you playing polo with Keith and Chad and Becky, um, you don't keep up with anything that is culturally black. Um, and you have no again, like you have no like you're you don't even hang out with your black family members. I'm kind of like, I mean, 
I'm I'm going to assign a judgment and say you want to be white, right? Like that's that's like that's what I'm gonna say in my head. The your but I still find it interesting though that like the I, I hear you saying not going up to strangers, but still like having that conversation with somebody like so look, what is this really? That's interesting. I don't think anyone would ever tell you. I don't. I, I, I'm gonna tell you. I don't think anybody would ever tell you, Aubrey, that. Yeah, I'm trying to be white. I don't think anybody would ever tell you that. I'm not questioning your friends. I'm sure your friends, your people. But I'm saying, like, I don't think no. I don't think anyone's gonna outright be like, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to be white. Oh, I think that's totally fair. I would agree with you. I think everybody's gonna go. Oh yeah, no, for sure. Like me, yeah, I'm white. It's white assumed over here. I'm not trying to do anything intentional to like hide part of myself. I don't think people. I don't think people are that honest. I mean, I think that's probably true. But so then, like, it comes to this question, which again isn't in any way like a pushback on the point. Pushback? No, it's okay. No, no. Well, if I had pushback, I mean, it's us. I would totally do it. But I think. It comes down to this question, which is in response to you, which just says, then how do we know? And like, for me, the only reliable way to know is to ask people what they are. Because there's a lot of people like I'll, a story of a family member of mine who is an enrolled citizen of a Native American nation, but who is white assumed or white passing. Um, most of their life would have straight up identified as white. Because for them, they were like, well, I'm a quarter blood, you know, so they're 75% white. I mean, and who knows about their DNA, but that's how the government classifies them. And like, they would have been like, well, I'm majority white, so I can't claim being native, even though like, literally an enrolled citizen of a, a Native American nation. And so that, and I'm like, well, like, I'm not allowed to tell you you're not that thing. You know, it's not my business. Like, I can have an opinion, certainly. I don't know. I, don't know. So I always just go back to self-identification, which has its own problems. I think. The self-identification is important. And I, th- and here's my thing. I'm not, like, if someone, if someone is white past, if someone's actively, like, look, I'm seeking a past as white, and they go on, and they say, no, I'm white. And they go, like, on, they go to, when they apply to mortgages or whatever, or, I'm not going to be like, no, you black, you need to stop acting like, it's more so like, I'm just looking at it like, okay, yeah, like you're looking to not be associated with blackness because of your own internalized white supremacy. So, okay. It's not me judging them on where they identify. It's me just judging the action of rejection of blackness. Like that's where I'm coming from. Your indigenous scenario is interesting because I'm not really versed well enough um, to like really like engage that. But I will say though that I, to me, like that's a that's a different wrinkle and nuance, because like in black culture, no one no one's if they're like hat. Well, that's not true. That's not true. Mm. Hmm. This is good. It's a good conversation. Yo, shout out to Culture and shout out to Aubrey. Look, this has been a dope uh, discussion. Um, I feel like we just got to have you come back. And I think honestly, we should probably do like a panel on like multiracial identities because i don't feel like that's engaged enough and frankly like in the data and the research that i've been doing there are distinct points of view and perspectives like in uh, at work um from multiracial people compared to you know other groups of individuals um so let me ask you this uh aubrey as we uh as we wrap up here what's giving you energy right now oh yeah that's oh, right that's hard pivot that's... boom boom oh all right so good questions i mean I think right now what's giving me energy is like how much I'm seeing, I'm involved in a couple of like side projects and things like that. 
And what I'm seeing is like how much people in the background are working together and supporting each other. So like in this world in which we're so incentivized to compete, again, white supremacy, I'm seeing so many people, whether that's on like my personal journey or things I'm doing with work or the ways I'm trying to show up for other people, I just see this spirit of collaboration and this collectivism that is getting bigger and bigger, at least in the spheres that I'm moving in, that makes me so optimistic and makes me feel like there's like hope and promise for us doing better. Um, and that might be just because I'm an optimist, but like, I just see this collective action and this greater respect for everyone who's pushing towards the same goals that I think is ultimately productive and really counter culture to what we're trying to change, which is great. Man, I just really appreciate you. I'm excited about the studies and the work that Coltramp is doing. And I'm excited about 2022. I'm really thankful uh, for you being a guest on the show. I'm excited. Yo, if you haven't already, make sure you check out Culture Amps study links in the show notes. You know what I'm saying? Click that, especially if you're a person with like lungs and you can breathe. Like make sure you go open the notes. In fact, stop the car, pull over to the side. I know you're probably driving somewhere. Stop. Everybody stop. All right. Now, now that you stop, I want you to stop. Go in the show notes. Click the link. You know what I'm saying? Get the report. It's free. She told you it wasn't behind the paywall. You know what I mean? Then click learn about Aubrey. Like she's, it's the links in the show notes too. I mean, I'm saying we have everything in there. All right. Now that you've done that, go ahead, start the car, check your window before you get merged back on the highway. Take it slow. And you know what I'm saying? Let's get to it. Okay. Aubrey, I appreciate you. Um, let's make sure to have you back especially as y'all's reporting continues to evolve and mature. I'm sure as you look at the data sets, you'll probably find some things and you're like, oh, okay, we could do that. Like, I, you know, I'm saying we're in a similar space. So I'm excited just to, one, to see how DEI practitioners respond to the data, to see how organizational leaders respond, and then also just to see how Coltramp continues to mature and grow. Thank you so much. It is always so wonderful to get to be in community with you and just grateful for all the work you're doing. Living Corporate is so amazing. So the fact that I get to be a part of the cheer squad is the best. Hey, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right, y'all. Be back. And we're back. Hey, yo, again, shout out to Culture Amp uh, doing great work over there. Shout out to Aubrey. Just a, a real fan of uh, her approach, her methodology, and just her willingness to like, just to go there. You know what I mean? People come on these brands all the time, putting on airs. She don't really be doing that. You know what I mean? I appreciate that. That's why you notice the people that come back, they keep it a thousand. You know what I'm saying? And there's some folks who I want to come back. It is we haven't made the calendar work yet. But I'm just saying, you notice the people who come back. Shout out Minda. Shout out Howard Bryant. You know what I'm saying? Shout out Aubrey. I'm just thankful for our community, right? I'm thankful for you. Thank you for checking out Living Corporate. Thank you for continuing to tell folks about us. Make sure you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure to uh, check out the links in the show notes. You can learn more about Culture Amp and the things that they're doing. Till next time, this has been Zach. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.